right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's happening? Welcome into to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com. We'll be joined by Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, com. He joins the show in about 35 minutes from right now, talking a little KU football, KU basketball with Matt. We'll also let you listen in, do some audio from Bill Self. We heard from Ochag Baji, Jalen Coleman-Lands earlier today. So uh, we'll share all that with you later on in the show. KU's offensive line has gotten so much better over the course of this season. And really, you could say this jump-off goes to last year when they were, I think Pro Football Focus rated them out as the next to worst, like 127 of 128 teams in the country in terms of their offensive line play, but it's hard to envision a team was worse than them. They gave up, you know, they were giving up five sacks a game. They were legitimately a issue medically for certain guys. Like Jalen Daniels got sacked, what, like nine times against Oklahoma last year? I don't know how he kept playing and, and how uh, that's another interesting thing. The fact that that was something talked about all offseason that they have to kind of get rid of the PTSD with Jalen Daniels. I, I think it's pretty safe to say he's done that with how well he's played. But that was the issue the offensive line brought. Not only did it basically create an issue for you in terms of just being successful, but it created an issue with just developing young players, developing a young quarterback or just getting a proper evaluation on him at all in the case of, for instance, Jalen Daniels. And now that you've had better offensive line play, an improved Jalen Daniels to go with that, you're seeing a much better result. But it's not just the improvement from last year to this year because that was already a pretty stark difference. Even if we we took the offensive line early in the season for KU when it was struggling at times establishing the run, when it was at times giving up inroads in pass rushing. Even at that point, it was still leaps and bounds better than it was a season ago. But I just find it very interesting over the course of this season how much it has improved. You really look at how things have graded out, like on Pro Football Focus, for instance, KU both pass blocking and run blocking. And if you look at it from like a game-to-game perspective from You know, if we take out the first week aside from the FCS game with South Dakota, you know, the run blocking has just kind of steadily found an increase outside of the a couple, you know, peaks and valleys here or there. It's slowly gotten better. The pass blocking, if you start in the second week of the season to where it has gotten now, has been night and day from where it was earlier on in the season. And... It goes a couple different ways. You have to credit the players for their improvement. Obviously, 
it takes time for an offensive line in general. That's part of this. It takes even more time when you're getting to know a new coaching staff, when you're getting involved in a new scheme. So it would make sense that they would get better as the season goes on. But they have become a unit that we're not talking about, and who knows, maybe things will change this weekend because West Virginia does have a, a good defense. But it hasn't been like a talking point of just how much of a turnstile the offensive line has been. And Scott Fuchs, the offensive line coach, came in with very glowing reviews. I think it's very easy to see why when we've seen just this in-season, in-game improvement for KU across the way. And beyond just the the team stuff, you know, if I looked at this individually with, with some of the most used or most played offensive linemen for KU, KU's had five different offensive linemen this year who have logged by far the most snaps as pass blockers, run blockers. I think they have five guys who have logged more than 100 snaps as pass blockers, and all five of them have logged over 250, and then nobody else is above 100. And then for run blockers, obviously there's other guys like tight ends and receivers who are logging run blocking snaps, but specifically for offensive linemen, it pretty much narrows down to you have five guys who have played the most. Again, this doesn't count for everyone because there are still other offensive linemen who have played, who are playing, right? You have Joey Gilberton starting last week with uh, Malik Clark out. And, uh, of those five, though, who have played the most, it's four who have played every game. I mentioned Malik Clark got injured. He missed the TCU game for you last week. So let's look at the four guys who have played the most snaps and who have played in all these games. That would be Mike Nowitzki, Earl Bostic Jr., Michael Ford Jr., and Bryce Cabledew. Nowitzki was the transfer in from Buffalo who had really good grades in pro football focus with Buffalo a season ago. This has always been one of my gripes with pro football focus, though, is as much as I like these grades, and it's it's a very nice tool. You wish that there was more context to it in terms of, like, they don't, you know, if you score a hundred out of a hundred grade on an FCS opponent, you get the same value for that as you did scoring a 100 out of 100 against Alabama, right? There's not a measurement that takes that into account, which it should. So, you know, he graded as a top five center in the country at Buffalo, but part of that might be competition-based. You know, if he was at a power five, how would he have graded? I don't know. But the point is he came in with high expectations and you know, it wasn't a seamless transition early on, and I also think that the center position, you probably are a little bit more at, um, I guess, a point where the guys around you are going to impact your spot more because it is such a communication position. It is such a spot where you're almost making up for other people's, you know, mistakes or, or trying to cover certain things. Um, and obviously, at the end of the day, like, you know, some of the grades aren't necessarily going to know exactly what the, the lineman was supposed to do. Like, was he covering for somebody else and he got discredited? I, I don't know. But for the most part, these are pretty good. And through the first six games, which takes you through the first game after the bye week. So it takes you through the Texas Tech game. First half of the season, right? 
he had about a 62 pass block grade, 56 run block grade, and a 57 overall grade. And I don't want to get too far in the weeds here with all the individual numbers here. Um, but just to show you, for instance, that was his first six. Over the past five, his pass block grade is an average of about four points better. His run block grade is an average of about six points better. His overall grade is an average of about seven points better. And we can go down the list, and, and I can tell you all these stories of success. Earl Bostic, his overall grade is about four points on average better over these past five games than it is the first six. And you could diagnose this and say, well, of course, it's going to be easier over these past five games because you had some easier opponents with TCU and Texas. Well, this also takes into account Kansas State, who's 7-4 and four in the Big 12, takes into account Oklahoma State, who is one of the best defenses we've seen in Big 12 history, takes into account Oklahoma. So this isn't just cherry-picking the easiest games to play against. Again, Mike Nowitzki, up an average of about seven points on his pro football focus grade. Earl Bostic, up four points. Michael Ford is up about a point. Bryce Cabledew has been the biggest improver, and that makes a lot of sense, too, because he is one of the younger guys on the offensive line. He's up an average of 13 points on his pro football focus grade from the first six games till the last five. And you look at this overall as a unit for KU, the KU offensive line, their average, or I guess the the pass block grade overall, you know, you total up all the averages between those four guys. Between those four, on average, they're up about five and a half points on their pass block grade. They're up about four points each on their run block grade, and they're up over six points total on their overall grade. And again, I, I'm not trying to inundate this with numbers that may sound hard to track, but let me just baseline it like this. On average, KU's four most used and played offensive linemen have gotten about a whole letter grade better from the first half of the season to where we've been in the second half of the season. It's an incredible job by the coaching staff. It's an incredible job by Scott Fuchs. It's an incredible job by the players, whether it takes the buy-in or the work or just to execute it, whatever has caused this, it's been fantastic, and it's allowed us to actually have a real diagnosis of Jason Bean versus Jalen Daniels, of being able to see how good Devin Neal can be, of being able to see how good a guy like Kwame Lasseter can be on the outside because you can actually get him the ball. And it's allowed this team to be more successful in offense. It allowed you to win a game at Texas. It allowed you to be competitive against TCU. It allowed you to hold the ball for so long and be competitive and almost pull an upset against Oklahoma. All of this team's success, you know, there's there's more than just one thing, but the number one thing I'm underlining is that offensive line, and boy, has it been improved. And I'm really excited to see what happens in the offseason when you have even more time for improvement, even more time for development, even more time under Matt Gildersleeve, Matt Gildersleeve, that you can really turn this offensive line, maybe, dare I say it, into a strength in the Big 12. That sounded crazy to say because we haven't really seen that with KU football. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. KU gets back in action on the basketball court, taking on North Texas on Thursday. You can hear it right here on KLWN, KLWN.com, and our sister station, 105.9 KISS. We have no idea whether Jalen Wilson's going to start or not, but honestly, 
If you asked me last week, I would have guessed that Jalen would be coming off the bench for maybe the first game, maybe the first two games, maybe the whole week, and then would eventually earn his starting spot back. I'm starting to switch over to thinking he's going to start right off the bat. Every time we hear Bill Self talk about him, you know, he glows about his offensive ability, his ability to push and transition, that he's the best on the team and that, that he's the best rebounder on the team. And that might be the most important one because we know how much he values rebounding and the toughness that he brings. And he's mentioned how he's been kind of a leader on the team and how he really has owned up to all this. Now, he has taken this process very well. He was asked about today at his presser, and again, we'll share that audio for you, um, about the fact that, like, who was he playing with? Was he playing with the backups? Was he playing with the starters in practice? And he's kind of worked his way up and been practicing with the starters of late. That makes me think that he is going to be a starter in this game on on Thursday night or, or Thursday, I guess, in the morning day time against North Texas. Um, but it, it's honestly even more of a guess to try to figure out who would he start for. Because if you'd want to continue playing two guards two lead guards, I should say, you would at that point be starting Jalen Wilson for either Christian Brown or David McCormick. Um, Here's why he's not going to start for Christian Brown. Christian Brown's playing 30 minutes a game. He is second on the team in scoring. He is second on the team in assists. He is leading the team in rebounding. Oh, and he's shooting 59% from the field. So that is not even in discussion. You could play small and have Dave come off the bench because he's not had the greatest start, and you could start Jalen at the five, and, and that would you know put him in the starting lineup. But guess what? KU still values David McCormick as one of the best players on the team and in the Big 12 because guess what? He is, when he is right, like we saw at the back end of Big 12 play last year, he absolutely was that, one of the best players in the Big 12. And it's funny, I've, I've seen some, I don't know, maybe – discontent with the slow start again for Dave, but this is far from the slow start that we saw last year. Last year, it was like, you know, in games not against whatever Omaha or or non-exhibition games or whatever the stat was, he's shooting like under 40% for a center. He's shooting like 27%, whatever it was, and just struggling in every regard. It's just been a few brief moments. Like, he struggled in the first four or five minutes of that game and then figured it out. This is... If if this is a slow start for Dave, you're going to be feeling pretty good because think about this. Even in his quote-unquote slow start, because we saw what it could be last year, so I guess it's down from that, he's still shooting 50% from the field and averaging a shade under three blocks per game. He's averaging nine and six in limited minutes. Like, you're still fine with Dave. You know Bill Self values that ability. You know Bill Self values the ability to throw the big man the ball in the post and have him go to work. And KU doesn't really have any other big men. I mean, Mitch Lightfoot can do it okay, but KU doesn't really have any other big men that consistently can score their own basket on the post. Zach Clements isn't strong enough to do it. He is a great three-point shooter and pick-and-pop big man, but he's not on the on the block. Again, Mitch can do it okay, but not consistently. Jalen Wilson, you're not going to do that with him. He'd be more of, you know, spread it out and, and drive or spread it out and shoot, which is an effective way of offense. But we know what Bill Self wants to run. We know that a lot of KU's offense is predicated around having that guy in the middle. So, again, that's not in the question to me either. Dave and Christian Brown are both going to be starting. So now at this point, you have three guys left with who would Jalen start over. Well, 
we can quickly knock that down to two because obviously we know it wouldn't be Ochagbashi. But flip a coin between whether it would be Remy Martin or Dewan Harris if Jalen ha- Wilson does start on Thursday or eventually starts. Dewan has really struggled, I think, early on shooting-wise. I mean, last season, he shot 64% from three. It was a very limited attempts. Um, But we heard about improvement in the offseason. We just haven't seen it yet. And it's still been a small sample size to where if he goes out there and hits his next three three three-pointers, like, you know, the percentage is all of a sudden back up and this might not be a conversation anymore. But at some point, if he does continue to miss from the outside, which he's still looking for his first make on the year, teams are going to stop guarding him from out there. And that could be detrimental to you as an offense with your spacing which I guess would make him a candidate to lose his starting job to Jalen. But we also know how much value he brings as a passer, moving the ball, running the floor, playing pesty defense, getting steals, just such a smart, high IQ player. And then on the other hand, you have Remy Martin, who is a little bit opposite of that. And Remy hasn't shot it great so far. He's at 33% from three. He's under 40% from the field. But we know when Remy Martin's right, he can be a flamethrower shooting. You just question those other things that Dewan is good at, you know, moving the ball, uh, playing pesty defense, running the floor. Not that he can't do those things. It's just been more of a question so far. So you kind of have that, but then you throw into the mix now that Remy Martin had the back injury. And I kind of wonder if because of that, the back injury, whether Remy Martin plays or has to play limited minutes because of it, I'm kind of leaning toward Jalen Wilson starting for Remy Martin in the short term, but then in the long term, when Remy Martin's back gets better and if Dewan Harris still can't figure out the shooting issues and Remy Martin continues to grow more in the offense and and figure out more of what Bill Self wants, then maybe in the long term, Jalen's starting over Dewan, even if it could be Remy in the short term for some of those other reasons. But either way, you know, they're both a coin flip in terms of will Wilson start or won't he? And who would it be for? Um, but I think one thing's for sure, no matter who it is for, you know, again, this is kind of splitting hairs because all of those guys are still going to have a big role on the team. And the starter is just a, it's just a term, you know, it's more important who's closing the game. And that'll probably just depend on who's playing better that specific day. But with Jalen specifically, I'm really excited to see what he looks like. I, I think it has been very easy to kind of toss aside the idea that he might be one of the best players on the team, right? It'd be very easy to say, well, Ochai, Dave, Remy, those are the three best players on the team. I would say not so fast. I think Jalen Harris or Jalen Wilson could very much figure into being even the second best player on the team. You know, I wouldn't go number one when you have Ochai playing like an All-American National Player of the Year candidate, but I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of the day, at the end of this week, we're looking up and saying, man, you know how Ochai had all these improvements after going through the NBA draft process and being told what to work on and having more aggressiveness. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Jalen Wilson has another jump in his game and all of a sudden we're saying, man, Jalen's the second best player on this team. And if that ends up being true, you're talking about an all-Big 12-level center in David McCormick, a guy who was the Big 12 preseason player of the year in Remy Martin, Christian Brown, who, like I mentioned earlier, he's doing so much for your team. He's filling out the stat sheet right now, having a good year, but it just seems so kind of quiet because of what Ochai and some others are doing to have those guys not even be a top two player on your team 
that would speak pretty loudly to how good this KU team can be. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, we'll play some Bill Self audio for you. He caught up with the media earlier today. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson in solo today. Joining me now on the phone, Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. And uh, we got to hear from Bill Self earlier today. A lot of Jalen Wilson um, on the forefront uh, of a lot of people's minds. Uh, I'm curious, Matt, uh, in my opening difficult question for you to answer, uh, whose role are you more interested to see what it looks like? Jalen Wilson on Thursday or Jason Bean on Saturday? Oh, wow. That is a good one, man. Um, the good news is that one's not too hard, but it is good. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. I, I, I'd probably go with Jalen Wilson. Um, number one, just because we've heard him talked up so much this this uh, in the early season here. I mean, for a guy who was suspended, you know, self, self's not one to gush over guys who have messed up, you know. And, and Jalen definitely did mess up. Yeah herself constantly talking him up about how much he's improved and 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 where he ranks in certain categories on their team and and what he can bring to the team and all these things and so um there's just a lot a lot of intrigue around that i mean it, it again it just kind of it goes against so much of what what bill self's about and 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 you know that that that's that's okay too i mean i think it probably is a good sign that 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 jalen has done everything in his power to make up for his mistakes since it happened. So, so there's positive things about that too. But I think that the, the fact that self talked it up so much has me more intrigued um, that, than I would be if he were just, let's say he, he twisted an ankle or something and wasn't able to, to play for three games. You know, I, I don't know that I would be quite as, as, as juiced about that idea. This is like, you know this team's pretty good already. They've been crushing people, and Ochai's been amazing, and, and there's a lot to uh, to like about the roster and the, and the rotation already. And, and, oh, by the way, now you get to add a guy who might be their second or third best player and, and on any given night could be their best player. So there, there's there's so much to like about that. And, and then to kind of finish it off here and, and put a bow on this thing, the Jason Bean thing has me really intrigued long-term. I mean, I, I think an off-season, uh, a spring football, a fall camp, and heading into the uh, 2022 season, if he's a receiver or, or a, you know, whatever he is, I mean, they, they may make up a position for him and, and give him some options and opportunities to, to help that team offensively. There's a lot to like about that. I just think we're, we're still a little early on, on that train. I, I don't know that in a week's time – you can totally, you know, put in enough and and overhaul enough to where it, it blows your mind or it's a major role. They may have a package or two. They may dial up a play or two for him, but I think the idea of him playing receiver and 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 being, you know, Kerry Meyer 2.0 or whatever it is, um, there's a lot to like about that long term. And 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 I I I hope for their sake that's the direction they go because Jalen Daniels looks like a pretty good quarterback and. 
And and at a place like Kansas, you you got to put your best players on the on the field. And, and Jason Bean, athletically and speed wise, is definitely that. So I think long term that's a fun one. But but as far as this weekend and right now, um, yeah, I want to see what Jalen Wilson looks like and 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 if he is everything that self's talked him up to be so far. I know you said that he could end up being a top two or three player on the team, and, and in most years, I think it's, I don't know, maybe not easy, but it's definitely easier than this year to kind of figure out the hierarchy of, okay, this is the best player on the team, this is the second best player, this is the third best player. And I think if we were to have a mock draft right now, both of us would very easily take Ochag Baji number one. Sure. Who, would you go with Jalen if you had the second pick in that draft? Yeah, you know, I probably would. Um, obviously, your other options would be Remy and Dave. Those are the two that jump out at you. Um, but but to your point. Well, I you mean, know what's interesting? Both. Like, and, and sorry to interrupt you here, but um, I, I was looking at this day, and I, I agree with you. Those would be the guys in the discussion. And Christian Brown would probably be fifth, maybe even sixth. But if you just if you go like look at the stat sheet, Christian Brown is second on the team in points. He is leading the team in rebounding. He is second on the team in assists, and he's shooting fifty nine percent from the field. Like, why is he not getting brought up in these conversations? Yeah, good question. I think it's largely because, uh, again, that's another guy that self talked up a lot, and and the expectations that were set for him were so so high, and and. Um, didn't get a chance to today. I wish I had. We ran out of time, but but I was going to ask self about that. I mean, what what's the next step for Christian to 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 kind of reach that level that he expects him to be at right now? And I, I mean, I think everybody knows what it is. I, I don't think it would have been a an amazing uh, revelation or anything like that. I think it's just you know it's one thing for me to say it. It's another for the head coach who's a Hall of Famer to say it. But but I think it's. I mean, he's you know he's got to find a way to to assert himself and get more aggressive as a scorer and, and and a shooter and things like that. But again, to your point, those those numbers that you just listed and where that ranks him and all those things. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, like uh, Ochai's doing just fine with Christian Brown doing what he's doing. So I don't I don't really see there there's any grand need for him to go crazy and and just. Start trying to. Well, I, I got to get my shots. I got. I got to score. I mean, no, there's no reason for that. It's working right now. So you throw Jalen Wilson into the mix, and and I'm I'm definitely intrigued to see how that affects everything. I'm intrigued to see how that affects Ochai. I think there's a a, a strong case to be made that that Ochai wouldn't be a 25, 26 points a game guy these first three games if Jalen Wilson never had to sit out. Um, you know, I think he would have he would have scored and handled and shared some of the some of the scoring load there. So um doesn't doesn't matter necessarily. It's not like, oh, you know, now Jalen's back, Ochai's gonna be a ten points a game guy. I doubt that's the case, but I do think it's uh there's there's the potential for it to impact things and, and you know, I mean I think getting back to your draft question, I think it's uh it's 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 the perfect question to kind of illustrate exactly how deep and talented this team is because I think starting at two, you could you could really start having some debates and some tough decisions. And and as you mentioned, I mean, that could go all the way down through six, seven, eight even. I mean, it's just the order on any given day has the potential to be different. Um, take a guy like Dewan Harris, for instance. Uh, I've heard for two years – and I'm sure others have as well, but I've heard for two years that there there are drills where they scrimmage in practice, and and you know it's not necessarily like a keep with the clock and and have officials and and simulate a real game, but maybe just sort of a 
haphazard running scrimmage that's just never ending. There's no out of bounds. They play the walls, all those things. And every time I've heard about those scrimmages or those those practice drills, whatever they are, they say that Dewan Harris's team always wins. Doesn't matter who he's with. Doesn't matter how he even plays. He is just that much of a catalyst for winning basketball. And and so, you know, would you take him number two in that draft? Probably not. There, there's enough talent and athleticism and things like that that you'd probably take. But could you make a case at three, four, five to to take Dewan Harris? You probably could. I mean, for instance, he's starting right. So there's there's a there's a, there's a good enough case for him to be top five. But you know that that that's just uh. That's just sort of the, the, the reality of this team and this roster right now. They're incredibly deep. They can play so many different styles. They can roll out so many different players. And it seems like the chemistry is pretty good between all of them. So if that continues to grow and only gets better, th- their ceiling is, is outrageously high. Do you think Jalen is going to start as soon as Thursday? And if he does, whether it's Thursday or eventually in the next week or so, who do you think the guy he would be starting for is? I, I don't think he will Thursday, um, but I'm about like 51-49 on that. <laughs> I, I, mean, I finally I, switched over to yes today just because every time, like you said, we talked to Bill Self, it's more glowing remarks. I, I was on your side, but I, I finally switched today. I, I think the biggest reason that I'm willing to switch and may by the end of this uh, interview here is, <laughs> is is the idea that, that Remy Martin's got a, a little bit of a yeah. back ailment right now. And so it, that answers both of your questions. I mean, if, if Jalen's full strength and raring to go and Remy's still trying to kind of bring that back along slowly, um, well, there's an easy answer. You know, you, you cut down his minutes, you don't put the pressure of starting on him, and you bring him along easily, um, and then you let Jalen go wild. So I, I think I probably just slipped to about 51-49 the other direction, just, just hearing myself talk. So I, I, I do think, you know, I do think it's still, I mean, Self said today, as you probably heard or played, um, you know, he hasn't decided yet. And, and so I think, you know, part of me thinks that, that, he wants to start him. I mean, he's one of their best players. He knows that. Everybody knows that. I, I, you know, he wants to. He wants to get this thing going. The other part of me thinks he's still the kind of coach that values, you know, paying paying the price when you screw up. And 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 yeah, he was suspended four games, and that was a big part of the payment and all of that. But you know, does he want to send that message that it says, as soon as you're back, you're in, you know? And and it, it probably doesn't mean anything big picture. It's probably not the end of the world. Either way, but you know, there's there's definitely enough variables that 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 basically make you kind of think that any answer is a good answer because at this point it, it could go either way and it could go a number of different ways. But but he has said in recent weeks that whether he starts or not, Jalen's a thirty minutes a game kind of guy, and uh, I think that's the only thing that really matters. If you if you know he's going to be out there thirty minutes. Uh, who cares if he starts? He probably does a little bit, but I, I, you know, I'd rather not start and play 30 minutes than start and play 15 every day of the week. So, um, I, I think that's, that's, uh, it's going to be really interesting, but, but, but I do think he's a starter. Um, and, and if that's Thursday or if that's Sunday, or if that's, you know, next week sometime or whatever, I, I think their best lineup 
is going to be with him in it. And generally speaking, you're going to, you're going to play your best guys at the, at the jump. So I think I'll tell you one more thing about Jalen too. I mean, I think that self's thrown it out there a couple of times and he does all of this in a calculated manner and he doesn't say anything without thinking it through usually. So the idea that he keeps bringing up that, that, that Jalen at the five lineup, and to me, that means we're going to see it. I don't know that they'll start that way ever. I mean, there could be matchups where it works that way. But, but either way, I'm dying to see that one because that could be a really fun team. That could be a really fast team. And, and that could be a team that, that really gives other teams fit. Yeah, what I was kind of thinking is, you know, and just trying to figure out the rotation, and, and I'll get to the point of this in a second, but if you get like 55 minutes between Dewan Harris and Remy Martin, Ochai's giving you 35 a game. Christian's giving you 30 a game. Jalen, you mentioned, is giving you 30. And let's say 10 of those are as a small ball five. Then you get 20 minutes from Dave at the five, 10 other minutes from one of the other five men, which is, you know, Mitch or Clements or, or combined. That would total up to being, I believe, 170 minutes or no, 180 minutes. So here's where I'm going with this. That would leave you 20 minutes left. And I didn't even mention Bobby Pettiford. I didn't mention Joe Yesifu, and I didn't mention Jalen Coleman-Lance. So that sounds to me, and again, maybe some of those guys' minutes go down. Maybe Christian's at 25 instead of 30, right? You can figure out other ways to squeeze out a few more minutes here or there. But the point is, there's not a lot of minutes to go around for all three of those guys. And the way that I kind of view it is one of those guys might be on the minutes chopping block. And that doesn't mean it's going to be the same guy every game, right? If if Joe Yesifu comes out one game, he's just hitting from three, then maybe he gets more run that game instead of a guy like Bobby Pettiford. But if you had to pick one of those three right now between Pettiford, Yesifu, and Jalen Coleman-Lands, who gets kind of the axe in terms of the, the minutes played, uh, who do you think that would be? Yeah, it's amazing. And, and you, you, you summed all of that up really well because I, I, think you're, I think the most important part is that it doesn't have to be one guy. It's, it's, it's probably going to be a revolving door sort of thing based on matchups, based on hot hand. Uh, based on effort, attitude, all those things that matter to self, you know. So I, I do think that that's, uh, in many ways, that makes it easier for him because you know it's it's now it's it's like your depth chart gets wiped clean every after every game, and let's see who's got it tonight. Let's see let's see who gives me the most in the next three four practices, and and then we we run with that accordingly. Now you're gonna still. You're going to still have a core. You're going to still have a starting five. You're going to still have a first big off the bench, first guard off the bench. I mean, a lot of those roles are going to be, you know, pretty steady, pretty solid, pretty set in stone. But the rest of it is is definitely, uh, you know, uh, up for up for debate and up for grabs. So I, I think that, in a lot of ways, makes them even more dangerous, and and also in other ways makes him makes Bill Self have to you know earn his money a little more because. It's not as easy as it sounds, even though it is an absolute luxury and, and a problem that most coaches would, would absolutely love to have. To answer your question, though, of those three, uh, I, I, I would probably lean toward Yesifu, um, and, and maybe that's because of what we've seen so far. Uh, where he has been the odd man out, even even in the rotation as it is. Um, He's still young. He's small. There's a lot to like. I know Self absolutely loves him, and and his his long range um, forecast and future here is very good. You know, and and he, but again, he's still a young guy, and and so um, so is Pettiford, but he plays 
I mean, Bobby Pettiford to me looks like the kind of guy that that was born to play basketball for Bill Self. And, and he's got a toughness. He's got an air about him. He's confident. He uh, he does what he's asked. He doesn't try to do too much. I mean, there's just so many self traits that 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 he plays with. And and yeah, he's a freshman. So you know, I'd probably rank him second behind uh, behind Yesifu if 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 that's where we're at in this conversation or about this question anyway. Um, but then that, you know, that leaves Coleman lands. And I think the fact that Dylan Coleman lands has been, has been playing through this toe injury has been working his butt off to figure things out defensively has, has been continuing to, to get run even while dinged up. I mean, it would have been really easy if self didn't want to play this guy or was, or was maybe lining him up to be the guy that, that, um, is sort of that that you know the, the guy that gets sacrificed when the rotation's full. Um, you know, I, it would have been really easy for him to just say, "Well, hey, J. Cole, your 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 toes bothering you? Why don't, we, why don't you just sit out, get that thing healthy, and and then we'll we'll get back with you when you're good." But but he didn't do that. You know, he he now part of that is because Jalen Wilson was out. Um, but but the other part of that is because his maturity, his ability to impact this this team. Um, and any game as a shooter, and, and just his desire and attitude. I mean, this this guy's got all the parts that you'd want, and and so I think Self's rewarding him for that. And and um, you know, I wrote it before the season started. I mean, didn't know exactly how big the role was going to be, but a lot of people, and and I'm sure we talked about it on this show. A lot of people kind of viewed Jalen Coleman lands as, as Ochai insurance when he committed and when he signed. And, and I understand that. And on some levels it probably was, but I, I was pretty sure after talking to him, after talking to self a handful of times and others, I was pretty sure that he was going to have a role and, and, and be a pretty steady contributor to this team, even as deep as it is. He's just a, He's just a veteran, man, and he's all business, and, and he's a grown man, and and so um, he he knows he knows what's important out there, and and he knows you know he's talented enough to play the game, but 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 it's so much more than that. The mental part of it for him is 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 just automatic, and uh, so so I, I think he continues to to get run again. Jalen Wilson may may impact his minutes a little, but um, but but Jalen Wilson may impact everybody's minutes. So. You know that's life, but 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 that's how I would rank them. I I put Joe first, um, and then Bobby second, and then and then uh, J Cole last. And I, I asked him today too. I that J Cole J Will thing, right? I I I was trying to find out if that was a new thing, if if self anointed him J Cole or 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 what. And I guess not. I guess he he uh, he's been called that before. So it's it's pretty good when I write it down on my score sheet when I'm when I'm keeping the game totals. I I just write J C L, but. I wouldn't be surprised if I changed to J. Cole. It just kind of flows, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It sounds great. And we'll see if he's making music on the basketball court this week with Matt Tate, <laughs> Orange Journal World, KUSports.com. Matt, thank you so much for the time as always, man. Thank you, Derek. Appreciate it. Have a good one, man. All right, that's Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. One hour down, two to go. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk. Four o'clock hour. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk. Derek Johnson here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Gonzaga-UCLA tonight. It is a matchup of number one and number two in the AP poll. I know 
Some people might not think those are the top two teams. I probably would agree that those probably aren't the top two teams in the country, but certainly it's a, it's a really good matchup. I think probably for sure UCLA is a top five team. Um, beat Villanova a week ago. That was really impressive from them. I'll be interested to see what tonight looks like because Gonzaga just kind of easily disposed of Texas, but I, I still don't really know what to think of Texas right now. I think that whole thing with, with so many new players who were kind of the alpha at their previous spot is going to take some time. I also have the uh, UCLA like revenge factor on my mind where, you know, how much is that going to play into things? So this will be a really good litmus test, I think, for both teams. You know, how good are they? Especially after last week, you really had a, a statement made by Purdue. I think Kansas is an opportunity to make a statement this week with their tournament and, and obviously uh, potentially Alabama in a championship game. And that would be uh, quite the test for the Jayhawks. All right, uh, I do want to get into a college football whip around here. Uh, we will have our college football playoff predictions coming up in the next segment. But uh, specifically for this, the Heisman race is heating up. couple big-time performances by the guys who are maybe the top two in terms of being able to win the Heisman right now. The Athletic releases a Heisman straw poll with a bunch of their college football writers and guys who have Heisman votes and everything every week. And Bryce Young is listed as the favorite. C.J. Stroud second. And then after that, you have a couple defensive players. Jordan Davis, the defensive tackle for Georgia. Will Anderson, the linebacker for Alabama. Kenneth Walker, the running back for Michigan State, rounds out the top five. Other players receiving votes there. Kenny Pickett, N'Kobe Dean, Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, Desmond Ritter, Matt Corral, Sauce Gardner, Tyler Linderbaum, and Marcus Jones. That's a collection of a couple corners in there, a couple receivers in there, some quarterbacks, offensive linemen in there, and Linderbaum at center. Kobe Dean's a linebacker, so um, that pretty much sums it up of how wide open this has been. Again, I just mentioned two corners, a center, a couple linebackers, defensive linemen. This race is still wide open. Now, it does feel like it is more narrowing down maybe to Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud after what they did last weekend, which in the case of Bryce Young was throw for nearly 600 passing yards and lead Alabama to win over Arkansas. Alabama's defense has not quite been there to what, you know, we're, we're kind of accustomed to. It's still a good defense, but compared to Alabama standards, compared to trying to win a national title standards, it might not be good enough. And an issue for Bryce Young, although this could be what wins him the award, this week they're playing Auburn on the road, which we'll see what happens there. Um, they're playing Georgia in the SEC title game. Georgia has the number one defense in college football. If Bryce Young goes out there and lights up that defense, that's probably enough on its own for him to win the award. But there's a real chance that they could either get upset at Auburn this week or that he just doesn't have a good performance because you're playing Georgia and that doesn't allow him to win the award. But I, I totally understand him being the front runner. CJ Stroud has some good opportunities as well. You're playing Michigan this week, then you'd get either Wisconsin or Iowa in the Big, 12, Big 10 title game, couple ranked performances. You're coming off a game where you were up 49-0 on a top-10 team at halftime, throwing all over the field. I kind of have hesitation anytime I see right now uh, an Ohio State quarterback just absolutely dominate. Um, I would personally, if it were between those two quarterbacks, vote Bryce Young over C.J. Stroud. Like, okay, I, I feel silly saying this, and I don't want it to come across as like Alabama has no talent or they're, they're not very good. Um I just, this is far from an Alabama team of like last year, for instance, where you have 
you know, three first round picks at receiver and a first round pick at running back and the best offensive line in the country. Alabama has a good offensive line, but it has not been as good as other seasons. It's not been as dominant. Jamison Williams is, I think, projected to be a second round pick. Um, outside of that, I don't know. John Mechie might end up being a high draft brick pick whenever he goes to the pros. They don't have like the first round running back behind him. Again, I, I'm not saying this to say that like Bryce Young doesn't have any good weapons around him, but the weapons around him are more normal. Whereas like when I look at Ohio State with CJ Stroud, Garrett Wilson might be a top 10 pick. Chris Olave is going to be a first round pick. Jackson Smith and Jigba is not draft eligible. He's a true sophomore. He would be a first-round pick if you were able to come out this season. You have three first-round picks at receiver. So, again, Alabama has nice pieces around Bryce Young, but he's doing so much more in that offense than, for instance, in years past, a guy like Mac Jones or, or something. He, he just has less of those, the Julio Jones, Mark Ingram, Derrick Henrys around him. He is that guy in this offense where C.J. Stroud has all those pieces around him. Ohio State probably has the best offensive line in the country. Oh, and their running back, Travion Henderson, true freshman, he would be a first-round pick if you were draft eligible. So it's just, it's just, there's more weapons around him, and I'm, I know I shouldn't hold this against him, but I kind of do. I always go back to a couple years ago when Dwayne Haskins, his first year as the starter for Ohio State, put up 50 passing touchdowns, and then he goes to the pros and he hasn't done anything. And it's hard for me not to view that and see all these amazing weapons that Ohio State has around him. And not to knock him just a little for that. Like, I I don't know. I, I just don't think C.J. Stroud is the best player in, in the country, I guess, is what it comes down to. Good player, having a great season statistically, but I would go for Bryce Young over him. But outside of that, again, like you're looking at running backs, you're looking at corners, you're looking at defensive players. And if a guy like Jordan Davis, the defensive lineman for Georgia, goes out there in the SEC title and sacks Bryce Young four times, he might win the award, which is pretty incredible. And I'm all about chaos. I'm all about... You know, having something unique, something different with the Heisman race. I thought it was cool last year. You had Devontae Smith, the receiver, win the award. Let's take it a step further. Let's get a defensive player to win that award. Some of the corners who got votes, like, they have no chance because it's so hard for us to, you know, properly evaluate through statistics how good a corner has been. Like, if a corner is that good, he might not have a ton of interceptions or pass breakups or tackles because they're not throwing his way. If you're that good as a defensive tackle, you're going to rack up sacks and tackles for loss and all those things, which we still don't have as good of a grasp of evaluating how good you can be there as we do with, say, quarterbacks and receivers and running backs. But it's a little easier to do that than corners, which is a little unfortunate. It's just kind of how it's going to be where the only way you're going to really have a chance to win it as corner is if you're, you know, Charles Woodson is um, returning punts or returning kicks or... If you get, you know, a bunch of pick sixes that year, if you get like 10 interceptions or something like that, Jaleel Peppers uh, was, or Jabril Peppers, not Jaleel. Uh, Jabril Peppers was like in the Heisman running because he played offense a few times, even though he didn't really do much, but he played offense. So it was notable. He returned kicks and he was on the defensive side of the ball. Um, Dan Mullen is out at Florida, leaving another big opening, and it's just going to cause some more huge ripples in college football. So now you have Florida open, you have USC open. Auburn could come open uh, for a couple reasons. One, they were already kind of split on Brian Harson being hired to begin with. Now they're six and five. 
probably going to be 6-6, six and six, assuming that they lose to Alabama. And on December 8th, they have a deadline for all staff to be uh, vaccinated. And Brian Harson has kind of avoided that question, which makes you think that he is not vaccinated. And you combine that with, you know, the record and everything, he's probably going to be gone. So that would be another big job. LSU is obviously open. I feel like I'm missing somebody else. Well, James Franklin just signed a 10-year extension with Penn State. Sounded as if Mel Tucker, the Michigan State head coach, is going to get a big extension with the Spartans as well for 10 years. That takes two of the biggest names off the market. A lot of people were kind of expecting maybe Mel Tucker would be the top candidate for LSU. That James Franklin would be the top candidate for USC. Now I don't know where they go. And maybe there's a big splash hire to be had, right? Like maybe LSU can find a way to pull Lincoln Riley from Oklahoma or something like that. But I think what this is leading more toward is that maybe some of these high-end Power 5 coaches are just going to stick at their current spot. And maybe you're going to have to dip into like Billy Napier at Louisiana Lafayette, who's done such a fantastic job there at the University of Louisiana. Like maybe he gets the LSU job. You know, maybe he takes that jump from Sun Belt to SEC. Normally, you'd see, you know, maybe Sun Belt to like a lower tier, I don't know, ACC or Big 12 team. Maybe you see like a Jamie Chadwell at Coastal Carolina go straight to Florida. Again, kind of skipping that, skipping that step from maybe that intermediate next level to the very top. Maybe that's kind of the ripple effect that we see. But if we do see another, you know, high end. Like I said, if Lincoln Riley were to go from Oklahoma to LSU, which I don't know why he would do that, to be clear. You know, you'd still be in the SEC either way. I don't know what they're going to do with the pod system or whatnot, but um, I don't know. Let's say for whatever reason, LSU offers him so much money, and he just views that to be an easier job for whatever reason. You know, he goes there. Then all of a sudden, you have the ripple effect of now Oklahoma's open up, and now Oklahoma hires a big-name coach, and now that other school needs a new cut co- and it just is going to create a, a big ripple effect and there's going to be a lot of really good jobs open that's going to cause a gigantic ripple in the college football coaching carousel all right who's still alive in the college football playoff or for the college football playoff last week we had 12 teams alive and a reminder on the rules here as we do every week rule number one you can't lose two times unless you win the sec so if alabama were to lose to auburn this week and then beat georgia next week alabama's still getting in at 11 and 2 um, proof is in the pudding. Auburn was 10-2 and two headed into the SEC title game a few years ago. They were ranked number two before losing for the third time, which you can't get in at that point. Now, I will say, this part of the row might be tested, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, number two on the rules for making a college football playoff, if you're a group of five team, you're probably screwed. Lone exception is you, A, need a lot of chaos around you. B, you need to be good at least the year before, probably for a few years before, and keep things kind of rolling so that you're on everybody's radar. And number three, you have to play a at least one marquee non-con game. Those all apply with Cincinnati. They beat Notre Dame. And again, that still might not be enough for them to make the playoff, but it at least gets them right on the doorstep of being able to do so. And then the final rule is if you lose one time, be in a power five, win your conference or be in the SEC, you know. Um, Beyond that, if you do lose that one game, that one game has to either come to a good team, but if it's a good team, you better hope that it's not going to block you from the playoff. So, for instance, Notre Dame lost to Cincinnati. Notre Dame 
has to hope Cincinnati gets the three seed so they can get the four seed, right? So lose to a good team, but hope that it doesn't come down to kind of a tiebreaker there. Um, if you do lose to kind of a, a middling team, you know, a five and seven, six and six, seven, five team, don't let it be a blowout. Ohio State missed the playoff a couple years ago because they got blown out by, you know, a round 500 Purdue team. But because they got blown out, it wasn't enough. And then the the last part of that is don't lose to like a terrible team, right? If you lose to a team that's like two and 10, you're probably done, even if it's a close loss. But if you lose to a six and six team by a field goal, like we've seen that before. Clemson with Deshaun Watson, they lost to Pittsburgh on the last second field goal. That Pittsburgh team was like five and seven, middling team. But, you know, it was a close loss. They won every other game, so it was fine. So with all those rules, ACC and Pac-12, no moss, Wake Forest, uh, give 48 to a Clemson offense that I didn't think was physically capable of scoring 48 points. Pac-12, Oregon got crushed by Utah. So the ACC and Pac-12, they have no shot of making the playoff. Big 12, you still got Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. They're both still alive. They play each other this week in Bedlam, so one of those is going to get knocked out. This is essentially like a quarterfinal, basically. But unlike a quarterfinal where the winner goes to the semifinal, the winner of this still might not make the college football playoff, but it at least keeps them alive for another week. Big 10, Ohio State and Michigan, same thing. Loser of this, probably going to be eliminated um, for the two-loss rule, and then the winner will go to the Big 10 championship game. SEC, Georgia and Alabama are both alive, obviously. Group of five, Cincinnati, and then Independence, Notre Dame. That leaves us with eight teams left. So we're down to eight from 12 from a week before. Now, as I mentioned earlier, rule number one of being eliminated from the college football playoff, if you have two losses, unless you can win the SEC. And I said that might get tested this year. I'm not expecting this to happen, but there is a possibility, which only takes, I think, two results, which aren't like that out of left field. This isn't me asking, you know, Kansas to upset Oklahoma State or something, or for like Rutgers to beat Ohio State. Here's the scenario of how this would change, and for the first time ever, we could potentially get a two-loss team in the playoff. If the winner of Ohio State and Michigan... So let's say Ohio State beats Michigan, loses in the Big Ten title game to, at that point, Iowa or Wisconsin. And so Ohio State now at that point has two losses. Michigan has two losses. Um, let's say it's Wisconsin who wins the Big Ten. They'd have three losses. So if that happens, now all your Big Ten teams have two losses or more. All your Pac-12 teams have two losses or more. All your ACC teams have two losses or more. You could still be in a scenario where you have Notre Dame, Cincinnati, SEC champ, and then one lost Big 12 champ. So still not a two-loss team would get in. But if that scenario happens in the Big 10, and it also happens in the Big 12, where let's say, because Oklahoma State, whether they win or lose this week, is going to the Big 12 championship game. Let's say Oklahoma beats Oklahoma State this weekend. And then Oklahoma State gets revenge on Oklahoma the very next week in the Big 12 championship game. Both would be 11-2. and two. Now, in both these scenarios, where there was a Big 10 championship upset, and you basically just had, you know, the team with two loss beat the one loss team in the Big Ten championship game or the Big 12 championship game. Now you're in a situation where you would basically have one spot between your favorite two loss team. And and maybe that wouldn't even apply. Again, there could still be a scenario where that doesn't even work. If Alabama beats Georgia, Cincinnati, Notre Dame went out, there's your four. But if Georgia beats Alabama, and then you have Georgia in there with Cincinnati and Notre Dame, your favorite two-loss team is getting that fourth and final spot. 
whether it's the two-loss Big 12 champion, the two-loss Big 10 champion, or two-loss Alabama, and that would be uh, pretty wild. All right, that is your college football whip round. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. College football playoff rankings come out tonight. Let's discuss on the other side. The third to last, I think, college football playoff rankings come out tonight at 6 o'clock. I don't think there's going to be anything overwhelming that's going to have an impact on where things finish. I guess there's a couple things. So Georgia should still be number one. That won't really be in question. I guess what happens at number two is interesting um, with this Ohio State with their win over Michigan State. Obviously, they'll move up to three, but do they jump Alabama? I don't think it's going to happen. Alabama's best win is the Ole Miss win. Ohio State's is now the Michigan State win. Well, Michigan State now is going to be viewed as, I don't know, somewhere between like the 12th to 15th best team. Ole Miss is probably going to be ranked ahead of Michigan State at this point, and they evaluate every week, so they're evaluating where you are now, and those wins will probably about equal out. Alabama's second-best win is at Mississippi State. Ohio State's second-best win is either at home against Purdue or Penn State. And Alabama's third-best is Arkansas. So uh, the resumes are about even. Um, losses, about the same. Alabama's at Texas A&M. Ohio State's at home against Oregon. Again, two teams that'll probably be in that like 10 to 15 range in terms of where they're ranked. I'm just assuming Alabama's going to be number two. And honestly, it doesn't really matter from you know a seeding perspective or anything. I think that's just more interesting to monitor in terms of like what is the margin for error for Alabama? If they're in at number two, Ohio State's still three. Maybe we do get a real scenario where, you know, if Alabama loses close to Georgia in the SEC title, could they still be in over Cincinnati? I think that would be kind of uh, interesting to monitor there. Uh, what happens, uh, I know, with Michigan and Cincinnati has been a talking point, like people wondering if Michigan would hop Cincinnati, which I, I wouldn't. If you were going to do that, this would not be the week to do that, I guess is where I'm going with this. Michigan just played Maryland, who is a 5-6 and six team, and they blew them out. But Cincinnati blew out SMU, who is a better team than Maryland. So Cincinnati got a better win this week than Michigan did, and they were already ahead of Michigan, so I'm assuming Cincinnati will be ahead of Michigan. But honestly, even if Michigan does happen to jump them, as, as dumb as that would be, because like I said, there's nothing from last week that should make that happen. Even if that did happen, it wouldn't really matter because if Michigan loses to Ohio State this week, okay, they'd just fall back behind Cincinnati. If they beat Ohio State this week, they're going to be ahead of Cincinnati anyway. So, honestly, that doesn't really matter. Uh, but what happens with with Notre Dame? Are they ahead of Michigan? Can they jump them at all? Or with the Big 12 schools, like is Oklahoma State and Notre Dame? Is Notre Dame still in front of them? Because there could be a, a scenario here in the end where you know, Georgia's number one. They beat Alabama. Ohio State's number two after dispelling Michigan and then winning the Big Ten Championship game. Cincinnati moves up to number three. And now your fourth spot in the playoff is between either a one-loss Notre Dame or a one-loss Oklahoma State team. And I think Oklahoma State would get the nod there. A lot of the teams that Notre Dame has played, they played a ton of Power Five teams. They get credit for that. I think they've won like 21 straight games against, or regular season games, I should say, against Power 5 opponents, which is actually like a really remarkable streak that they've put together. Uh, but Oklahoma State's just going to have more there with top 25 opponents. They would have the extra game. They would have the conference championship. 
and I think they would hop over them. But if Oklahoma State's ahead of Notre Dame already tonight, then you know it's basically a certainty, whereas if they're not, then maybe if you're a Notre Dame fan, you can at least hold out hope for the near term. And then where's Oklahoma, right? Like how how much – I know some people view it as, well, Oklahoma has so much ground to make up if they want to make the college football playoff. They're so far behind now. Don't view it like that. They literally say this every week. They start from number one every week, and they recreate the, the top 25 each and every week. So I don't view it like that. You know, if Oklahoma – comes in at number 10 this week, and then they beat Oklahoma State, they're going to hop over a couple teams. They'll hop over Oklahoma State, and then they win the Big 12 championship game. All of a sudden, they're in discussion for the number four seed as well. But then, um, outside of that, it's really what happens with the jockeying of a bunch of these two-loss or three-loss teams in kind of the, because I'm assuming, you know, Baylor, Ole Miss, Oklahoma, like that might be your eight through 10. You could put like Oregon and Michigan State really wherever you want. Oregon, you could make a case that maybe they're ahead of Ole Miss. Maybe they should be like number nine on the list. You could also make a case that Oregon lost so badly to Utah and that Utah, because they've made a quarterback change, even though Utah has one more loss, we've seen them do this. We saw this with like earlier on Mississippi State had three losses. They were ahead of a a two-loss team who they beat head-to-head. Do they jump Utah like all the way into the top 15 and have Oregon like 15 and Utah 14? And if they're going to apply that, where does San Diego State come in? Because San Diego State beat Utah head-to-head. I just think that whole thing is going to be interesting. It won't really matter for the playoff, but it just is kind of interesting to see where they all turn out, and it could be interesting in terms of determining like who makes a New Year's Six Bowl, right? And it could be interesting in determining like if Cincinnati were to get upset this week at Eastern Carolina or to lose next week to Houston, That could be very interesting in determining who gets the group of five bid to a New Year's Six Bowl. San Diego State, would it be Cincinnati, would it be Houston? So there is a lot to look out for even beyond the playoff. And I hate that the conversation in college football has become so playoff-centric. And I'm doing it, and I've done it, because that is just kind of where things have gone. But I do miss, you know, I don't miss the process of the BCS and the fact that it was only two teams. But I do miss that there was actually lore around making it to a BCS bowl game around some of these other bowl games in general around just being ranked 15th and how cool that was for a program that wasn't normally ranked. And now we don't really get that anymore, which is unfortunate, but there is going to be a lot of intrigue for me in kind of that 10 to 15 range with uh, what they do with everything there. All right, that is the college football rankings prediction. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, let's let you listen in to some KU basketball audio. Ochai Baji and Jalen Coleman-Land spoke with the media earlier today. We'll play that for you on the other side.